So I, I tend to do better with people around me who are strong and are not afraid to voice their opinion. Because if somebody tells me something's not possible, I'll tell them 50 ways it is. Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Pierre Coelho-Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And I'm Rob Kramer, founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership. In this episode, we bring you Pierre Carlo's interview with composer Paola Prestini. Pierre Carlo, can you tell us a little bit about Paola? Sure, she's uh, another force of nature. We are encountering a lot of those out there. <laughs> she, uh, she founded her first nonprofit arts organization while she was still studying composition at the Juilliard School. That alone says a lot about the kind of person she is. She was interested in creating these boundary blurring collaborative pieces. And there were an opportunities to do that kind of work on Juilliard's already jam-packed curriculum, so she made her own opportunity. Of course she did. She, Yeah, she founded the interdisciplinary arts company Vision Into Art, VIA for short, and then she ran it successfully for 15 years thereafter, all the while gradually making her own mark on the world of classical music with her own large-scale choral and symphonic creations. In 2015, she folded Via's mission into National Sawdust, a brand new performance space and music incubator in Brooklyn that she co-founded with tax attorney and arts lover Kevin Dolan. While managing National Sawdust's many programs and its impressive performance slate as the organization's artistic director, she has continued to compose works that have been performed all around the world, including orchestral and choral works commissioned by some of the world's premier classical music venues, including the New York Philharmonic, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and the Barbican Center. The music you'll be hearing in this episode is excerpted from Paola's composition, Listen Quiet, and features cellist Jeffrey Ziegler, who incidentally is Paola's husband, and percussionist Ian Rosenbaum. Paola spoke to me from her home in Brooklyn in late April, a few weeks after she'd returned from Minneapolis, where the pandemic lockdown had shut down rehearsals for the premiere of her first commissioned opera, Edward Tulane. I'm happy to report that Minnesota Opera has committed to premiering the work at a later date. San Diego Opera has made the same commitment for her opera, Aging Magician, which was also slated to premiere in spring of 2020. I started out the interview by asking her which of the skills that she uses in her composition practice translate directly to her leadership style. Well, I think, you know, when you're dealing with composition, you're dealing always with starting something from nothing, right? And so even if you have, you know, a set approach, um, at least for me, it's, it's, you know, I certainly have you know, certain aspects of my music that I hope are, um, you know, are aspects that, that, um, that one hears and that one can relate to and that, that, that are kind of recurring. But really, as a composer, I'm always trying to, to, to do something new and always trying to bend myself and stretch myself. And so I think that one of the qualities that most directly relates to being a leader is this ability to build something from nothing and to reimagine constantly um, you know, our reality and be able to take kind of disparate thoughts um, and, and, and merge them into, into one cohesive thought. Um, and then, and that, 
you know, I guess also the persistence of imagining that you can be a composer and that you can, you know, <laughs> do this, uh, this thing that is, is very rare and that is very difficult in terms of jobs. I think those are things that, that probably uh, really, you know, extend themselves into, into being a, a, a leader, a natural leader. Can you describe yourself as a leader? Sure. I mean, I think that um, I, I, I am a, a person who has a lot of ideas, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, I tend to be very driven and very, um, when, I, when I fall in love with something, when I have an idea, when I'm dedicated, I'm 100% in. And I don't easily take no for an answer. So I'm <laughs> constantly trying to find ways to make things work. Um, and that persistence um, and, and, you know, the fact that I keep trying um, is probably... I mean, probably a, a good asset. Um, I love collaborating. You know, that's really what I've always done. And so I like to be around teams of people. Uh, but I'm also someone who I, I don't like know people, you know, so so I, I tend to do better with people around me who are strong and are not afraid to voice their opinion. Because if somebody tells me something's not possible, I'll tell them 50 ways it is. And that's unfortunately just part of what you develop when you've had to, you know, kind of struggle in a career or have had to really build everything from, from, you know, from the ground up. Um, so those are a few things <laughs> that, that probably describe me as a leader. Are there any qualities of, that you'd like to explore more? Is there any, um, you've been at this a long time, not yeah. you've been a leader almost as long as you have been an artist. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, you must know yourself as a leader as well as you know yourself as an artist. Are there any in any ways in your leadership that you'd like to improve or things you'd still like to learn? Always to improve. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the idea of, um, of taking the best part of, the, of, of people's ideas and of people around you and lifting that up and, and doing that, um, even when you're in moments of great tension with grace, I think are things that I can always learn how to do better. Um, Personally, you know, I think in terms of leadership, one of the things that I've, I've felt good about is that some of the leadership skills that I've learned in terms of, you know, interacting with boards um, and with, you know, people from very diverse backgrounds at National Sawdust have helped me in turn, turn around and deal with, um, you know, complex situations, for example, as a composer in the opera world. And I love to see how reflexive those qualities now are in me. There was a time when I saw being a leader as a very separate thing from being an artist. Um, and I think that's part of, you know, I mean, it's part of many things. It's part of the fact that I didn't have a lot of, um, you know, of mentors or, or, or of leaders who were women who were also composers that I could say, ah, mm. that's, that's me, you know, I can, I can be like that. And so I think there was a part of me that didn't celebrate the fact that I build structures as a um, as an artistic accomplishment, as something that is equally valuable. And so once I've been able to kind of accept my totality, I feel much more free in something that I've always done very naturally, which is to oscillate from creative thought um, to building structures and to thinking about ways to bring uh, programs and, and change out into the world. Um, and so I guess that that's just that comes with, you know, with age and with being able to feel comfortable in your skin. But I've been I've been I've been excited to see that those skills are reflexive. And I guess the place where I really want to go next is, you know, is, is maybe a little bit back to um, the things that drove me at the beginning 
which is really about, you know, reimagining artistic processes um, and, and what that means, you know, in, in terms of specific impact for communities and, and, and also in terms of collaboration and how can I refine um, my collaborating with scientists, with neuroscientists, with, you know, for example, the work I'm doing at Atlanta Opera is with, you know, this is about this intersection between disability and AI. How can I, you know, continue to refine um, that artistic process and then have that be mirrored for younger artists? So I guess I'm always thinking about ways in which um, there can be regenerative cycles in what we do. And I think that you know, as artists, the more that we can do that, um, the more that we'll see uh, a, um, you know, a more kind of holistic learning and evolving artistic society. Later, I asked her when she realized that her leadership and artistry went hand in hand, that they did not detract from each other. I mean, I think it was well into having built National Sawdust because the beginning of that was so difficult and uncharted for me. You know, it was um, it was it was really a complex start of a of a new venture. Can you describe it? Sure. I mean, you know, I think as and maybe many people say this, so sorry if I sound like a cliche, but had I known how hard it was, you know, I probably <laughs> wouldn't have done it. And uh, I think at the time, you know, my my husband was in the Kronos Quartet. We were living in San Francisco and I had always had vision to art and was away from New York and I had a small child and, and I was sad, you know, I was away from my community. For some reason, I just couldn't break into the San Francisco scene. And all of a sudden I'm presented with this incredible opportunity from this gentleman who's the co-founder with me, Kevin Dolan, to reimagine what it would be like to create a home for artists and that he wanted a living artist, he wanted a practicing artist. Um, and how could, you know, how could I build that from scratch. And at the time, there wasn't the fundraising component, which later would become a huge part of what I did. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, in those first years, and this is of no fault to anyone, but nobody really understands that, you know, you can't really be all things to everybody. And so even though they said, oh, you know, we really want you to be an artist. Well, the truth is you, you, you can only do so much in, in, mm -hmm. you know, in a day. And I had a child and I was, so I did the best I could, but the reality was, is I was always spread thin. And the complexities of fundraising um, for a mission like the one we have, which is all about discovery and not coming to hear Renee Fleming, you're coming to hear the next Renee Fleming, you know, or whatever it is in any style that we put forward. Um, it's really about discovery. And so you're kind of looking for the venture capitalist type, if you will, a philanthropist who's willing to put money into something that very well may fail. And so it took a long time to fundraise. It took us five years. And finally, when we opened, we had opened and had built enough, uh, excuse me, raised enough to, for the building, but hadn't raised anything for the art. So none of the ideas were capitalized. And what that meant was that everything was, um, you know, everything from then on for a while was, was, uh, was putting us further and further in debt, if you will. And so it, it just was a difficult, difficult beginning because you, you need to build a brand and you need to tell people what you stand for and art isn't free. And I think there's this myth that artists just need space. And while they just need space, I mean, you don't get a Soros fellow to just build a club, right? Like for me, the whole point was how can we create a mentoring kind of regenerative system that, that's going to help artists 
and do so in a way that, you know, is not so Eurocentric, but that really deals with aesthetic equity. And so I had big ideas and, and I was just, you know, good. I was just doing the best I could without a lot of, um, of knowledge. And so I learned while doing it. And luckily, you know, for better or for worse, uh, you know, hit my head along the way many times. And then I would say that about, you know, two, three years in, I think people began to understand that it was more than just this beautiful sounding space, which was really important, obviously, um, but that it was really a space that had a set of values, you know, that had aspirations. Um, and as I built confidence in knowing that I had built something that I would be proud of, um, and my writing was getting back on track and, you know, the pieces that I had been working on for years, because I, I tend to, you know, write large scale work that take many years to, to complete, were being performed like Aging Magician. I began to feel more pride in myself um, and be, began to be able to translate some of those leadership skills and also some of those skills of dealing with people who have very, very different set of, um, of values and of, um, you know, of understandings about art. And, and so having to deal with with kind of when you're really at odds with somebody, I think helped me helped me succeed in situations where I had to see everyone's way and I had to emerge from it in a way that I would be uh, proud, but at the same time do so um, with di- diplomacy. We're hearing in a lot of these interviews that, of course, this is not going to be a surprise to you or to anyone that uh, arts leaders' least favorite task is having to fundraise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And because usually it entails having to speak to non-artists and um, learning how to do that. Do you have any hints or tips on how to share your vision and your passion to someone who is not naturally versed in the arts? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, and it's the the thing that I say with everyone, it it takes patience. I mean, the idea that you're going to develop a relationship with a donor that is going to immediately translate into money um, often only happens when you've already done all the building blocks and there are some miracles in life and those are amazing. Like for example, right now we just got an angel donation to start this you know, live aspect of our digital stage that helps artists with really substantial grants. That, that was a miracle, but we've also been building you know, for, for five years. So that can happen, but it's what I've learned and maybe it's that I haven't had as much success as others, but is that fundraising is is really about authenticity and the same way that you would deal in a collaboration. It takes time, right? Like a collaboration is, is an art form in itself. It takes time just like practicing your instrument or composing. The same goes for a a philanthropic relationship. There has to be trust. There has to be, you have to be willing to give it time. Um, You have to be willing to learn from them, right? The idea that I go into uh, a relationship with someone and, and think that I need to teach them, and that's it. Well, that's that's a missed opportunity for me. What what do they have that they can teach me? And that's how I developed, to be honest, a pretty successful relationship with my co-founder. Um, I would say, I would venture to say, we were very close, and also with our board president. Is that I I call on them. You know, I ask them for advice. I take it. You know, I sometimes when I I mean most of the time I it's it's these are relationships that I've built that are important to me, and so. When you're not asking for money, but you're building something together, even when it's someone that you're not as close to, that there's that authenticity and passion, um, I think it, I know, something sparks and it becomes easier. Mm, that makes sense. So you mentioned live at National Sawdust. Can you walk us through how you came up with it as this crisis was unfolding? 
Sure. And you had a sense of what was happening. How did you go about creating that program? And can you describe it? Yeah, well, at the beginning, you know, I, I like everybody else, was in shock. You know, I, I was actually in Minnesota about to premiere my first grand opera. And then had another opera going up at San Diego Opera. So things that I had been working on for mm. years and everything was just canceled days before the show. Mm. So I was heartbroken. And then at the same time, had to deal with the kind of heartbreaking uh, reality that, you know, we couldn't continue the way we were at Sawdust. I mean, we've always been towing this tightrope. And so when things began to unravel, they unraveled very quickly. You know, we didn't have a backup. Um, so we had to immediately restructure. I, I went off salary. My managing director went off salary. We, you know, brought the company down to literally like six or seven people that could just, you know, help us rebuild. And that was painful because... I've never done anything like that. Um, and then, you know, the first instinct was what everyone's instinct was, which is to say, we have this incredible archive. How do we organize it into a really beautiful way that can, you know, thematically bring people through some of the work that we've had over the years, um, through some of the workshops. Like I had interviewed Todd Macover, the composer Todd Macover and the soprano Renee Fleming um, on mental well-being. And so we created this, you know, these weekly themes that range from joy um, to uh, this week is mysticism. Anyway, beautiful range of themes, and we began to archive and to cut up the work um, and, and do so, I think, in a, in a refined way. But it was always, you know, the question to me was, you know, this is great, but as I've lost all my income, how is everybody else going to survive? And that's when um, we got very fortunate and we received this angel donation after speaking to someone who I really cherish, and they gave us an, a wonderful sum of money to be able to support um, both kind of emerging and mid-career artists. And so we, we kind of came up with the idea of a discovery series that would launch two, two times a week. And then a hosted masterclass between myself and my good friend, the vocalist Helga Davis, with more kind of mid-career to established artists um, talking about performance practice and also how to how they're coping with this new normal in hopes that for some of the younger artists out there or anybody really it can help elucidate uh, and, you know, a, way, a way forward. I ended the interview by asking Paula to imagine the time when the pandemic is over, when we can once again gather en masse. How did she think audiences' relationships to the arts will have changed? How did she want to address audiences differently? Hmm, that's such a good question. I mean, I think that, you know, the thing about audiences and artists are that we're all living through the same thing. You know, so often, I mean, there are, there is some some art that's super, you know, looking into the future, but, but art is really often a reflection of one's identity and an identity is informed by a community. So I think that I, I foresee that when we can be together, there'll be a need ever more for that kind of trust and connection, that spiritual connection that happens between audiences and artists. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that the big forums that I love to write for continue to exist and that those opportunities continue to exist. Uh, but I think there will be, we were in a very plush time. It was still very difficult for many people, but there was, there was a lot, there was a lot of noise. There was a lot out there. I think that there will there will be more and more independent work, um, you know, continuing to be done. And I think in terms of audiences, it's going to be up to all of the spaces right now to really be trying to find new ways 
um, to give to the audiences and to let them into what the artistic experience is so that, you know, so that when we can be back together, there's a clearer way to do that. And I think that's the responsibility of anybody who's in an artistic leadership position to be, to be thinking about right now. And that was a huge impetus with, you know, in terms of getting the work out there and inviting audiences in for free right now is that nobody's in a place to be spending money. Let's face it. I mean, you know, at least, you know, our audiences were, are, are very kind of young, you know, young concert goers and everyone's been really affected by this. So, so for us, it was important that, that this be free so that we can continue to foster that relationship. So in two years down the line, what do I hope for? Well, I hope for, first of all, that it's not two years down the line. I hope that it's <laughs> much sooner than that. Uh, but I hope that, you know, I hope that there's, there's, um, there's kind of an ever-growing need to, to want and to be uh, together in these kind of communal experiences. And I think there's also going to be um, the creation of new forms, you know, new digital forms. Having said that, you know, I've done a lot of collaborations in the last month dig- digitally, and it is hard. You know, I mean, sonically, it's important that it sound good if you're a composer or, you know, a musician like that really matters. And it's just not the same because, you know, you use your ears to hear and to kind of create within a space. And that space is now being channeled through computer speakers, you know, to so it's just not easy. And so while I think there are going to be these new digital forms, I think we're going to want ever more to be, you know, in the presence of, you know, of, of musicians, um, and hearing things in, in the ways that, you know, that we haven't had, that we've had the opportunity to have in the past. So if you imagine a young, a young you, a composer coming up through Juilliard right now, uh, and I imagine she's probably had to go home. Um, but anyway, she's mapping out her career. Do you have any advice for her during this period? Mm. Such a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think that the advice I would give would be that, you know, first of all, to be to be healthy, to be able to kind of look at the the time needed in terms of mental health. And especially as a composer, you know, you're you're well, actually as any artist, you're really your your mental health is is paramount in terms of how you deal with with your your art form and and um and it needs to be able to support, not detract from you. So if 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 this time is is time where you need to not write and you need to just live, let that be it. Because that is a huge, you know, successful thing to be happy, to find happiness in the unknown, to be able to survive it, to be healthy, um, you know, to just survive is important during moments of massive unknown change. Um, if, you know that is all working and the desire to create is still there, then I would say that building communities is ever more important. And sometimes, you know, people deal again with massive stress in different ways. Like I tend to retreat, you know, a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Like I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm upset. I, I don't know how to figure this out. I'm going to not reach out to people. And really when I have finally reached out, I feel so much better. Oh, this person's coping with this this way. This, you know, and so not to forget that that everybody is coping with this, and that that you know there is um, there's a difference between isolation and solitude. And you know, we want to not be isolated. We want to kind of learn how to deal with the solitude. And so to do that in ways where you're calling upon your community, you're creating new communities. Um, if it, you know, if if this is a time to learn about digital reality in terms of your craft. 
then use that time. And then there's a lot of free stuff out there. So to, to really be looking to service organizations to see what are the conferences that they're providing or the, you know, the services that they're providing. Um, because as hard as it is for artists right now and freelancers, um, I do think that there are services out there and people out there who care and who, who need our voices. Um, and so just to be reaching out and, and again, though, just taking care of oneself is paramount in this time. So, Rob, what, um, as, as you've listened to this interview, what about Paula's leadership style really stands out for you? Well, the first thing I noticed, Pierre Carlo, is, um, you know, she's telling the story about sitting in an apartment in San Francisco and feeling down and this opportunity presented itself. And to me, it's an example of an artist using their innate skills of seeing an idea and generating things from it. And and clearly in everything she's describing in this interview was her sort of innateness of generative thinking and what's next and what can we do different and how do we adapt and all these transferable skills that she as an artist is just doing as a leader. And I think that's a, a critical thing for us to remember is the the way artists have a natural affinity that works in a leadership capacity. That immediately jumped out. She has a tremendous amount of patience and humility about herself is my take on her. Um, and that kind of has a willingness to, to sit in it and work her way through um, situations that are not clear. So, so in that respect, I guess she has a, a lot of self-reflection and apparent to me, self-awareness um, and lets that awareness kind of guide her decisions. Cause you know, for a leader, you can only, um, make decisions based on what you see, know, and understand. And if you're not willing to look at yourself and look at the situation um, broadly, you're going to be limited in the scope of what you see and believe. And and I think she really models that well of getting a sense of herself, getting a sense of her situation, and, and looking for other options. So, and then the other thing that I guess really jumped to me, Pierre Carlo, is, is she seems to me to be a, a systems thinker. And by, by that, I mean... She's noticing how one thing impacts something else, which impacts something else and the interconnected of, interconnectedness of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's such a unique and important skill that leaders can cultivate to recognize the interconnectedness in relationships, when you're setting goals or strategy or having a vision. Uh, and then obviously in the daily work you do is to understand those systems. Thank you so much for bringing us this interview, Pierre Carlo. You're welcome. She was a real pleasure to speak to him. Very grateful she took the time. If you'd like to learn more about Paula and read a longer version of this interview, please go to uncsa.edu slash artist as leader. And if you enjoyed this episode and aren't already subscribed, go ahead and do it. And while you're at it, give us your rating. We would love that. And maybe even a comment. Yes, comments and ratings are very helpful for a new podcast like ours. Indeed. Special thanks to Jack DeGilio and of course to Paula herself for allowing us to use her music in this episode. We'd love to hear your ideas about which artist leaders in your own community you'd like us to profile in future episodes. So please visit us on our Facebook page at Keenan Institute for the Arts and leave us your comments and suggestions. Our theme music is by The Dimes. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. And I'm Rob Kramer. Thanks so much for listening.